Well, hello everyone and welcome to Bible study tonight. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come out and study the Word with me. We're studying through the book of Acts. One, because it's a book of the Bible, and two, because I want to relive it. I know you want to relive it. We need to relive it. The world needs the church to be in revival more than it ever has, I believe. And I think one of the ways that we can bring that about is by studying this book and asking Holy Spirit to to do it again in and through us. We left off last time at Acts chapter 2, verse 41, and so tonight we'll pick up at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and then we'll go straight into our handout for Acts chapter 3 and 4. I doubt we'll get through both of those chapters tonight, but I didn't have a lot of notes for these chapters because it's a narrative. These chapters are telling a story and they, they kind of speak for themselves, but I did want to give you a handout so that you can follow along with me. So Acts chapter 2, and starting at verse 42, and they, the apostles and the 3,000 that were saved on that first Pentecost of the New Covenant, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to what the apostles had to say, to being in fellowship, being in community, uh, celebrating the Lord's table and eating together, and to the prayers. Uh, This word uh, devote means to be persistent. So not only were they devoted to it in the sense that they did it, but that they did it often. They did it regularly. I mentioned on Sunday morning that the early church was instructed by the apostles to recite the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Um, Not because it was going to accomplish anything extra or special. Uh, Jesus himself said, don't, when you pray, don't use vain repetitions thinking that in your many words you will be heard. What the apostles wanted the early believers to do is to pray, and what better prayer to pray than the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And so they would recite it several times a day. And uh, what an incredible prayer it is to say things like, Our Father, who is in heaven, your name is holy. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. And to pray every day, multiple times a day, for God to be your provider and to be your deliverer from temptation and from evil. And then to, to give him the praise that he's worthy of, to say things like, yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forever. It's a beautiful prayer to pray, and you would do well to pray it a few times a day and use it as a guide for your prayers. And the early church was devoted to the prayers, the Lord's Prayer, the other prayers of Jesus, the other prayers of Scripture, the prayers of the Psalms, and they were careful to be persistent in it, to do it often. 
Because intimate one-on-one communication with God is at the heart of our relationship with Him. And as I said Sunday morning, you can't be in an intimate love relationship with someone you never talk to. And we want to be in intimate love relationship with God. And so we need to talk to Him. Verse 43 says, And awe, wonder, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That's an interesting point that Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, points out. He says that the signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. Why is that significant? And we'll discover later on that these signs and wonders were not uh, limited to the apostles, but here Luke is sure to point out that they were being done through the apostles especially. And the reason is because these signs and wonders were the confirmation that what they were saying was true. You see, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, were these apostles just making things up? No. They were claiming that what they were teaching was inspired by the Holy Spirit and was the Word of God. And so signs and wonders accompanied the Word of God to prove that these weren't just regular people or charlatans making up things, saying that they were from God, and claiming that what they were saying was God's word, that these miracles and signs and wonders were being done through them to attest to what they were saying. Um, And it wasn't just limited to them. Make no mistake, I mean, we read in Corinthians and in other epistles that the church was operating in the gifts of healing and prophecy and things of that nature, These gifts weren't limited to the apostles, but they were definitely uh, being done through them as a sign that what they were saying was true. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So the previous verse says that awe came upon every soul. I think that every soul refers to believers and unbelievers. Whoever saw what was going on was amazed by it. But in verse 44, it says, all who believed were changed by it. All who believed came and had everything in common. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, some people would say that this is the model for the church throughout its history. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, this was a very unique time in history, not just church history, but in history. Um, at this time, the church and the followers of Christ were beginning to be persecuted by first the Jews, who were the ones that Uh, crucified Jesus. I mean, Peter mentions that in the previous chapter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus who you crucified. Why did they crucify him? Because he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God. 
And his followers were being persecuted by the same people that persecuted him. And Jesus warned that. He said, if they hate you, know that they hated me first. And so this persecution began very early on. Christians were never popular. Uh, they didn't, or at least they didn't start out popular. They were very unpopular. They were very ostracized and outside and other. They were very marginalized. And so in order for them to get by, they had to have all things in common. They lived in community, and oftentimes they lived communally because it cost many of them their jobs, their livelihoods. Uh, some of the women were forced out of their homes because of their belief in Jesus Christ. Some of the men lost their jobs, their employment, their livelihood, and they had nothing. And so the early church discovered that following Jesus is going to cost us something. And if we're going to make it, we're not going to be able to all be in our own little uh, Bubbles. We're going to need to come together to form a community. And so that's what they did. They sold everything they had, and they gave it to those as they had need. And because they were willing to, to follow Jesus, in spite of the cost, look at what the fruit was. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That was the fruit of their willingness to follow Jesus despite the cost. That the Lord would add to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is good for us to do. We may not all have to go out of here tonight and sell our, all our possessions and, and give to those who are in need, but we, um, we can attend, well, we don't attend temple, but we can attend church. We can break bread in our homes. We can be thankful for the provision that we have. We can be generous. We can praise God, and we can enjoy favor with people. And when we do all those things, the Lord will add to our number those who are being saved. Okay, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. From verse 1 to verse 10, Peter and John perform the first miracle of the church, and Peter preaches again. So let's read what happens. Let's read the account of this first miracle and... Then from there, we'll go into reading Peter's first sermon, or second sermon, rather. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, which is the ninth hour. This was, again, them being devoted to the prayers. So they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, so that he might ask for alms to those that are entering the temple. Okay, I'm just going to stop there. I'm going to go back to something I said Sunday morning. One of the reasons I believe there were so many signs and wonders and miracles 
in the first century church was because they were devoted to prayer. And they were going to the temple for the hour of prayer, or at the hour of prayer, and that's when this first miracle takes place. Now, I also quoted on Sunday morning that prayer doesn't um, ready us for greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Um, Oftentimes we view prayer as something that gets us ready for something better. But prayer is the best thing that we can do. It's the most efficient and effective thing that we can do as followers of Christ. And that's what Peter and John were doing. They were going to the temple to pray. They weren't going to the temple to pray so that they could go out and perform miracles. They were going to the temple to pray because that's what they were devoted to. And while they were doing that, an unintended miracle happened. Because I believe that's how God works. So I just wanted to point that out again. And as we read through the book of Acts, we will see that as they were devoted to prayer and to the prayers and to praying persistently, that as a result of that, miracle signs and wonders followed them wherever they went. But it wasn't because they were praying to do those things. They were praying and those things happened. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he, the lame beggar, asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. He was expecting to receive money, I would assume. But Peter said, I have no silver and I have no gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them. Now, what's amazing about this is this man's lameness excluded him from the temple. This may be the first time he ever went into the temple. He may have been lame from birth. I don't remember seeing... Oh, yeah, yeah, verse 2. Lame from birth. Yeah, verse 2. So this man was lame from birth. Maybe he had club feet or something. He was excluded from temple worship. He had to stay on the outside. But the apostles that were going to pray saw this man who asked them for something, asked them for money, and they said, we don't have money, but we'll give you something better. And they said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Now, this is the first miracle of the church. What's amazing is they weren't really given any instruction as to how to perform miracles. They, they saw what Jesus did. They saw how Jesus did it. Of course, they were eyewitnesses to what he said and did. And Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, he will bring to your remembrance all that I said and did. And so I think that, again, this is the Spirit moving through the apostles, reminding them, okay, Jesus spoke to things, and they happened. And so, 
invoke his name and tell this man to stand up, who's never stood up before. It's not like he was able to stand and then got in an accident and couldn't stand anymore. He had no muscle memory, no ability to stand. He was brought there every day. And so these men are telling him, stand up, and they have to give him a hand. They picked him up by the right hand. They raised him up. And then as soon as they did that, his feet and ankles were made strong. And this man, who'd never walked before, began to jump and walk, and he went into the place where he was excluded from his entire life. And when he went into that place, he went in leaping and praising God. And again, all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And look what happened. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And this goes back to chapter 2, verse 43, when it says, And awe came upon everyone. When all the people saw what was going on through this new group of people called Christians, Christ followers, they were amazed. They uh, were filled with wonder at what had happened to him. And this amazement, this wonder, opens the door now for Peter to preach his second gospel message. So while he, the formerly lame man from birth, clung to Peter and John, all the people were utterly astounded. They ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, and when Peter saw it was he, or sorry, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. I'm going to move this so that cable is not blocking my view. There we go. And when he saw all the people rushing to him, Peter addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> why do you wonder at it? Well, I don't know. We've seen him here for years and years begging for alms. He couldn't walk, and now he can walk. Seems pretty wonderful to me. Uh, but Peter's going to tell them there's something even more wonderful than that physical healing, as amazing as it is. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? See, they aren't taking credit for it. They're not going to the temple to pray so they can go out and perform miracles. They're going to the temple to pray. And the opportunity for a miracle is presented. And they say, well, Jesus is the miracle-working God. Let's call on his name and tell this man to stand up. So he said, we didn't do it. It wasn't our power. It wasn't our piety that made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, look at this, scathing, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And when he decided to release him, or sorry, denied in the presence of Pilate, when he, Pilate, decided to release Jesus, verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Look at these names that 
Peter uses to describe Jesus, the holy and righteous one and the author of life. He says, you denied this holy and righteous one. The ultimate act of sin is to deny Jesus, right? Disobedience. It's the unforgivable sin. If you won't obey Jesus, if you won't confess him as Savior and Lord, God can't forgive you. You must confess Jesus. And Jesus says of these people, you denied him. You denied the holy and righteous one. And you murdered, you killed the one who gave you life. Pretty scathing remarks. But he says, you didn't have the last word. God raised him from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Let's stop here for a moment. Jesus is never going to suffer again. He suffered once for all. He died once for all. And through that suffering and death, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Hebrews 5 and 8. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. Not temporary salvation, but eternal salvation. Why? Because he offered himself the perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all. You see, the blood of bulls and goats, um, the blood of the Passover lamb, it was a sufficient sacrifice for a year, but it was not the perfect sacrifice for all eternity. It was a sufficient sacrifice. It covered the sins of the people for a year. But Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, not only covered the sins of the people, but washed it away once and for all. He will never suffer again. And because he suffered once for all for the forgiveness of our sins, we can have assurance that we are forgiven once and for all and that he is to us the source of eternal salvation because we have obeyed him. Remember, disobedience is the worst sin it's a sin God can't forgive. The disobedience to come to Jesus and to confess him as Savior and Lord. If you don't do that, there is no forgiveness for you. Uh, that forgiveness has been made available. Christ did shed his blood for everyone. There's enough of it. It's sufficient. But it is not efficient for everyone, it is only efficient, meaning it only works for those who confess Jesus and confess him as Savior and Lord. Now, can God forgive 
as a believer your disobedience? Yes, of course. But he can't forgive um, your disobedience to the spirit that draws you to Jesus, to the foot of the cross. You have to make that decision on your own. God will never impose his will on you. It's his will that none should perish. He desperately wants everyone to be saved. But he won't impose that will on you. With your own free will, you have to choose to obey the Spirit and come to Jesus. So I just wanted to stop and point that out. The suffering of Christ is fulfilled. He'll never suffer again. And so what Peter says is because of that, because the Christ has suffered and his suffering is fulfilled, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Notice he doesn't say the Christ suffered and so you're all good. No, he forces them to make a decision. Because it is fulfilled, repent and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out, and so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. A person can't truly enjoy the presence of the Lord until they've had their sins forgiven. Can someone sense the presence of the Lord when they come into a place where the presence of the Lord is? Yeah, an unbeliever can sense it, but only a true believer can be Uh, refreshed by it and only a true believer can enjoy it fully because they can know my sins have been forgiven you see when an unbeliever comes into the presence of the of the lord they can they can sense it and like it but they will immediately be confronted with a choice they will be convicted of their sin they'll say i'm not allowed in here I'm not, I'm not made for this yet. I'm excluded from this, just like this lame beggar was excluded from entering into the temple. So too are unbelievers excluded from truly enjoying the presence of God. They have to come through Jesus. They have to make their decision. And when they do, their sins are blotted out. Times of refreshing come. And uh, Peter continues and says, Repent and turn back that uh, he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom you um, must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. So, what Peter continues to say here is that the Messiah suffered We must make our choice to repent and turn back. And this choice stays in effect until the end of the church age. Until it says, uh, verse, verse 21, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. So until the end of the church age, until after the tribulation, when Jesus comes and sets up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years, until then, the only way to get in is to repent and turn back, to confess Jesus and uh, to receive his broken body and shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15, about how... 
Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and that the Father is putting everything under the feet of Jesus and he's going to continue to do that until the last enemy to be destroyed, which is death, is put under his feet. And so that's still happening because we're still here. Jesus is still on the throne. He's still in control. It, it may seem out of control out there. It may seem hopeless, but it's not. He's got everything under control. The Father's still putting everything under the feet of Jesus. And while that is still happening, we live in the age of grace and we must preach the gospel. We must preach. We must call sinners to repentance. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So Moses is prophesying about Jesus. And he says, if anyone who does not listen or anyone who does not listen to that prophet will be destroyed. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaimed these days. What days? The days that we now live in. Remember elsewhere in the Bible it says the prophets longed to see what it is that we now have. Verse 25, for you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God will make with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Well, how is that possible? Well, only through Jesus. Everyone is blessed through Jesus because Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. It wasn't Isaac or Jacob. It wasn't national Israel. Those were just types and shadows. Jesus was the true seed, Galatians says. And through him, all the nations of the earth are blessed. That's why Jesus told his disciples, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every nation, because through me, all the nations shall be blessed. Don't just limit it to the Jews. Yes, I came to you first, but it's going beyond this. I've predestined for myself a family from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to the Jew first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Well, did every one of them turn from their wickedness? No. But to as many as did, he, became, he gave the right to be called sons and daughters of God. Okay, let's jump into chapter 4 for a few minutes. We definitely won't get through all of it. It's a beautiful chapter, a big chapter. I love this chapter, though. There's something that happens at the end that I just love. It's another one of those things I want to relive. And as they were speaking to the people, so as Peter's preaching this, this scathing gospel message, telling them all that they're, that they're sinners, that they, that, they, um, that they denied the Holy and Righteous One, and that they killed the author of life, as Peter was speaking these things to the people, guess who comes along? The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. The buzzkills. I mean, it was going good. And then these religious people show up with their titles and their garments and their robes and their 
Oh, you know. You know the type. In verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Whenever you preach the gospel, it does annoy religious people. Religious people love rules, systems. They love the notoriety that comes from climbing the religious ladder. Uh, Earlier, remember, Peter said, don't think that this happened because of our piety or our power. Well, those religious people thought that everything they did and every wonderful thing that was accomplished through them under the old covenant was because of them. They didn't realize that that was just God using them as a type and as a foreshadow for the reality, for the substance that was to come. They thought it was them. And so they showed up and they see these uneducated fishermen preaching and the people are listening intently. And what they're saying is a rebuke against them because the priests and, and, and the, the captain of the temple and all, they're the ones that said, we have no king but Caesar, give us Barabbas. So I don't know if they're feeling convicted or guilty. We know that they're feeling greatly annoyed. Verse 3 says, and they arrested them. They abused their power. Hmm. What a surprise. And they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Why is that important? Well, they weren't able to hold temple court in the evening. Funny, it didn't stop them from holding temple court when they wanted to convict Jesus, did it? They did it in the cover of night. But now they want to appear righteous and they want to appear law-keeping. And so they said, we're going to arrest you, but we're not going to have a trial at night. It's against the law. So they're going to go home and come back the next day. Verse 4, But many of those who had heard the word already believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So we got thousands more. We got 3,000 back at the end of chapter 2. And now we're up to 5,000, and only two gospel messages being preached. That's pretty fruitful preaching, if I do say so myself. So they're up to about 5,000 men. I mean, that could be, you know, 10 to 15,000 people altogether if you consider wives and children. Because as goes the father, so goes the family, right? Verse 5 On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together. So remember, then we're going to do it at night. We gotta, we gotta, I know we just abused our power, but we gotta make it look like we don't. So we're gonna put them in jail overnight, but we'll come back in the morning. And we'll be deceptive and manipulative. Hmm. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, which Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family, or sorry, with all them. Verse 7, and when they had um, set Peter and John in the midst of them, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And look at this, verse 8, I love this. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
I mentioned last week, or I guess it wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago, that there is a difference between being baptized with the Spirit or in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. And we'll get more into it as we go on, but being baptized with the Spirit, we read in Acts chapter 2, or 1 and 2, was about being baptized into the name, into the family, into the body of Christ. So when I say things like, we're saved, we're sealed, and we're seated, that sealing is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that we're baptized into his name and into his family. But then there's this infilling that happens. And so Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Or sorry, I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable there. Let me read it again. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. It is by that means that this man is standing before you and he is standing before you well. Isn't that amazing? If you want to put me on trial, if you want to know what happened here, just know that it happened by the power of and in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who you killed, who you crucified. His blood is on your hands. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you who are called the builders. But Jesus has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. Now when they, the religious people, who were greatly annoyed, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Again, God uses anyone who is available and willing. Particularly, I believe, those who are common, like me and you. There's nothing special about us. But if we're willing and available, God will use us to do great and wonderful things. They were astonished, and they recognized, look at this, that they had been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? Hmm. How, do we, how do we be with Jesus? I said it at the beginning. By intimate one-on-one communication through prayer. Through talking and listening to our Heavenly Father. Listening to Jesus. Listening to the Spirit. We weren't eyewitnesses. But Jesus actually said... It's one thing to see me, and the apostles saw me. But it is better for those who believe and have not seen, for they see with the eye of faith. And faith is the evidence of things hoped for. 
or the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And so you can be with Jesus too. You're not excluded. Remember the, the crippled beggar? He was excluded from temple worship. But then he was made whole and he was able to go in. And that's the same with us. We were excluded from knowing Jesus. We who were once far off have been brought near. We can now know him. And people can say of us, they've been with Jesus. Jesus.